0: So, usually it's the human foible of thinking you can predict the future. That's what interrupts compounding. So, people say, I think the stock market's going to go down next year because we're going to have a Biden Trump rematch and that's going to be terrible for the world economy. Well, you can accurately predict the events of the future, but you cannot accurately predict the reaction of the economy to those events ever. Don't predict the future and do not sell your equities, your stocks, your savings based on that unless you need them for a very good reason. A very good reason looks like only one or two things. You need to make a down payment on a reasonably priced fellow, right? <laughs> you have an yes. emergency
1: you need to take care of. Uh, and that's about it. Hello and welcome to the Optimal Agency Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings. As always, I'm joined by my friend, John Gilson. Together with you, we are exploring the ideas of agency, diving deep to discover a set of guidelines on how each of us can best operate in the day-to-day to maximize our personal autonomy, professional freedom, and ultimately our positive impact on the world. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. How is New Hampshire, Mr. Gilson?
0: <laughs> All right. So I get, I'm sitting here preparing for our session today, and mm-hmm. I get there's a knock on the window, and it's my neighbor, <laughs> Brad. And Brad has come over to, I find out to, A, give me a heart attack by knocking on the window, but <laughs> two, to invite me and Annie to dinner at his, at his house tomorrow. Uh, yep. And I go out into the driveway to, uh, to talk to Brad, and he's got his little dog, Elsa. Uh, Let it go, Elsa. Tied to the handlebars of his bike, okay? Uh, because they just were on the presidential rail trail, and she was mushing him
1: down it. <laughs>
0: Okay, Mushing so being
1: what what huskies do to
0: yeah to, except yeah. Elsa except Elsa's a thirty pound shepherd mutt <laughs> yep. okay so that's what's up in New Hampshire where mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're bike joring with with rescue dogs that's what's up yeah
1: and knocking on neighbors' windows which yep, I to think is to invite them hilarious, hilarious. Yep. all right. Well, beyond that, what we've got this week, we've got a listener question from a physician struggling to leave the admin work that comes along with the job at work. Our main chat will be a breakdown of one of our rules. This time we're talking through the wealth rule number six, which is let compounding do its work. It's our final wealth rule. And then we'll close it up with a hot take on an article by the writer and organizational uh, psychologist Adam Grant about the true meaning of freedom at work. Ready for a question? Let's do it. This is from Ted. He's a physician in his 40s. He says I have a pretty good work-life balance and it's always been high on my priority list. The last few years I've uh, made more of an effort to place family time above all else. This has worked out well and spending time with my wife and kids has been great. I know I'll never regret these choices. The last few years this has caused some extra stress concerning some of my work though. I do administrative work or some administrative work from home and have to go uh, and have to go to some meetings. The rest of my job is all clinical and stays at work. The administ- administrative work is rewarding at times, but also can be tough to deal with when I would rather spend time with the family. That's the background. My main issue is that I have not done a good job of compartmentalizing my time at home when I need to do the administrative work. I've got an office and can do most things at home aside from the occasional meeting. I seem to spread the work out over hours and days instead of getting it done in small focused increments of time. I also end up checking emails throughout the day and then have to respond at times instead of checking them once daily and getting all the responses out of the way. My answer to this issue is that I need to schedule 30 minutes daily to go through work emails and stay ahead of the game. Then if I have a larger task to complete, schedule an hour or two in the office and complete it. My schedule is very irregular because I do shift work. This makes it difficult to schedule a regular time every day. Due to the irregularity, I often will skip the emails in the morning, then spend part of my afternoon doing work things when I could be doing family things uninterrupted. If you have any tips or a short book that may be helpful, I'd be interested.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ted, I've got a short book for you. Uh, download my white papers, uh, at agency.co. Uh, no, I'm I'm kidding. Uh, so Ted, it sounds like you're working hard on work-life balance, which for a physician in their forties who does shift work, like talk about headwind Mm -hmm. Ted. Mm -hmm. So nice work. And I thought a lot about what you've got going on. And so I've got three suggestions for you. The first is because you can't set a time block that's the same every week, your your schedule literally changes week to week, I want you to establish a cue for doing this administrative work that is not concrete in time and day, but is concrete in its relation to something else that you do. What I mean is something like this. Let's imagine that you have day shifts and you have evening shifts. And for your evening shifts, I'm making this up. Never worked in a hospital, so, uh, you know. Please comment if I'm completely off. But let's imagine you go to work at 7 p.m. for a night shift, okay? And you're normally going to leave at 6.30 to do that. What I'd like you to do instead is to say, my cue for answering administrative emails is uh, when I have a night shift, one hour prior, I'm going to depart home and I'm going to go, and this is my second suggestion, to a third place. Not your home, not the hospital. Mm. And I want you to do that work at that third place. It could look like Starbucks. It could look like a local coffee shop. If the weather's nice where you live, it could look like a park bench, right? And a hotspot on your phone. Don't care. But what I want you to do is divorce the idea that home is a place you do work at all. Stop mm. it. Stop it. Turn the office into a into a, I don't know, playroom for your kids. Like An just, arcade. That's my suggestion. Yeah. Dude, that's a good one. Arcade. I like arcade. Yeah. Uh, and then... When you have that third place and that cue set, I want you to abide by it until it becomes habit. It's probably gonna take a month or two, it's gonna feel weird. But you know now, when you get to the environment of your home, it's family time, hard stop. And you've developed this third place where the other tasks of the hospital cannot demand anything of you. No one's expecting you to be anywhere else. You've just left for work a little early, okay? That means you're gonna focus on your family, When it's time to focus on your family, your work, when it's time to focus on your work and your administrative work, whenever you get to that third place. The last thing I'd suggest, and like this blows people's minds when I actually sit down with them and their email clients, there's something you can put in place for any email that you answer repeatedly with the same answer, which Mm -hmm. turns out to be a lot of emails. Okay. Okay. Get some systems. Use canned responses. What is this? It's In marketing, it's called a swipe file. In uh, Gmail, it's called a template. You essentially pre-write an email and say, hey, I'm going to populate this email. I'm going to change the name of the person or these three or four details that change every time, and then I'm going to hit send. So let's take down the amount of time you spend doing email. So that's one. Second, read only emails. You probably have some number of emails you just need to read right? And you probably pitch responses back to those, like, got it, right? Or, hey, awesome, stop doing that. Nobody cares, right? (laughs) They don't need your three-word plus exclamation mark response. Stop sending them. And then the last one uh, is, as you think about systems, think about how can I eliminate these emails from getting to me at all? Are you the right person To answer the query that's landing on your desk administratively, do you have any power to delegate that those go elsewhere? And so this gets into one of my favorite things when I'm working with my consulting clients, which is ways of working. Mm -hmm. Can I alter not what I do? Can I alter the system to my benefit? So hopefully that helps, Ted. I don't want you to do any more hospital work in your house. Again, identify a third place, do it there and use a Q on your rotating schedule. Anytime I go in for my night shift, I do X at third place. Anytime I go into my day shift, I do Y at third place. Hope that helps.
1: I'm going to say something that is actually uh, absolutely not related to Ted's question, except uh, only very tangentially, which is I find it so funny that you and I met in like 2005 and 20 some odd years later, somehow we both fell in love with like time blocking and email systems and like <laughs> we'd never talked about it until we started this but somehow we both fell in love with it. it's just absolutely absurd to me that we both ended up in the same place so yeah again, yeah well we're both affected by gravity as well you know yeah, i mean like when true. something
0: just makes sense it just makes <laughs>
1: sense All right, we're going to jump into our main chat about one of our rules of wealth, but a real quick call out to something that you should know about, which is our newsletter. We send out a newsletter every Tuesday morning. You can get it, optimalagency.co slash newsletter. We send you one actionable tip to help you build your agency every single week. And not to brag, but pretty much everybody we send it to opens it. So uh, it's that good. So optimalagency.co slash newsletter, and you will get on the list rules of wealth. As I often do with our chats about our rules, I like to just give a quick context of like, here are all the particular rules that we have talked about. Then we're going to get into uh, our rule today. Six rules of wealth. Number one, separate your time from your income. Number two, make as much as you're able. Number three, spend much less than you make. Number four, pay as few taxes as you can. Number five, purchase passive income and appreciating assets with your savings. And we've done episodes on each one of those. So if you've missed them, go back and listen. And rule number six, what we're going to talk about today, let compounding do its work. What does that mean? Yeah. So compounding is a phenomenon by which when you apply a
0: constant rate of growth to something and that growth becomes part of the base from which future growth occurs, something first gets larger gradually and then really, really quickly. Okay. And everybody, listen, You, you, if you're listening to this, you know what compounding is already Mm -hmm, likely, mm -hmm. right? You get 5% interest on a hundred bucks in a year, it's 105 bucks. The next year, you get 5% on that 105 bucks. And so it's a hundred, you're going to make seven bucks in interest that second year, right? Basically. And so if you leave the gain in, it becomes the new base and it gains and gains and gains. Okay. And so this is the underlying idea behind leaving your money in the bank and letting it compound. This is the underlying idea of investing in the stock market at its average compound annual growth rate over the last 100 years of 10% before inflation. Uh, And so you probably know what it is. But what I'd like to talk about is what does that mean you need to do if you Mm -hmm. want to allow that to occur? So let's say you've listened to all these rules of wealth. You're saving a high proportion of your take-home income. You're investing it in appreciating and dividend-producing and income-producing assets, and now you need to let compounding do its work. Okay, so here's the problem with the basic illustration of compounding. One, it looks like a straight line, 100, 105, 107, right? And so, you know, 112, so on and so on and so on, and it just marches up into the right. No, it doesn't. Not as Mm -hmm. soon as you get stocks and equities involved. And if you've invested at all, you know this massive dot com crash in 2000, 2007, 2008, the subprime mortgage crisis takes 50 percent out of stock market valuations. Right. March 2020, COVID ceases to be a Chinese problem and becomes a a global pandemic. And the stock market drops 30 percent out of the bottom. And I'm not sure I have that exactly right, but that's approximately right. You know, And then you get to the Fed, current Fed tightening cycle, and essentially you see the S&P bouncing up and down 10% and going nowhere in two years, right? And so compounding is not a straight line over the short term it, it, in equities. It is over the long term. So let's talk about how to deal with not that straight line today. The other myth that I want to hit is that it takes forever to get results from compounding. Mm-hmm. We, we treat it like you're not going to get rich until 50 years from now, but then you're going to be really rich. Well, that's cool, but I'd like to be rich now. Mm-hmm. I want to be, be rich now. <laughs> right. And so how long should you actually expect compounding to take to have an appreciable effect? And so we're actually going to talk about my last 20 years, my mm-hmm. entire professional life of saving money, making money, and what it, wh- where I started and what it's gotten me to. Uh, by obeying this rule by, by letting compounding do its work. And we'll go into the behaviors that you need to do what I did.
1: Mm -hmm. Before we do uh, let compounding do its work implies that there is an action you can take to stymie compounding doing its work. What is the, what is the primary or primary mistakes that folks make that stand in the way of, of not compounding Compounding is going to work on its own, but letting the compounding do its work.
0: Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. It looks like. Not leaving your chips on the table, it -hmm. looks like selling your equities, selling your bonds, selling your stocks for any reason other than a good one. So usually it's the human foible of thinking you can predict the future. That's what interrupts Mm -hmm. compounding. So people say, I think the stock market is going to go down next year because we're going to have a Biden-Trump rematch, and that's going to be terrible for the world economy. Well, Mm -hmm. you can accurately predict the events of the future, but you cannot accurately predict the reaction of the economy to those events ever. Okay, If you can, uh, well, one person can. His name's Jim Simons. Uh, He runs a a hedge fund called Renaissance. Look that guy up. But Mm -hmm. he's the only one, and you're not him. (laughs) You're not smart enough to be him, frankly. And so don't predict the future and do not sell your equities, your stocks, your savings based on that unless you need them for a very good reason. A very good reason looks like only one or two things. You need to make a down payment on a reasonably priced house, (laughs) right? (laughs) You have an emergency you need to take care of. Uh, And that's about it. A real emergency, like, Mom and dad need long-term care kind of thing. Other than that, you let it ride as long as you can. Now, at some point in the future, you start spending it down. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that journey to a peak at which point you'll start spending it down. Yeah, great question, Pat.
1: Um, I think I don't, it's not out yet. So I don't know for sure. I think that that's the subject of Morgan Housel's next book is the, our inability and yet our insistence on trying to predict the future. (laughs) Uh, So anyways, something to keep an eye out for. Okay. So I think you, you leaned into, or you hinted at some of the steps we can take with leaving your chips on the table, but there are, there are likely some more. So where should we begin in thinking about the actions to take, to allow, to let compounding do its work?
0: 20 years ago, Patrick and I were bank tellers. That's and uh, we had the option, I don't know if you took advantage of it, Bud, to enroll in the 401k, mm-hmm. Boston Private Bank's 401k. By the way, Boston Private Bank became Silicon Valley Bank, which imploded yes. last year in fireworks and had to essentially be saved by the Fed and was sold for scrap. So, uh good career choice is us. All right. Uh, so, enrolled in the 401k at Boston Private Bank and started saving some portion of my very meager paycheck. So, that was the beginning. I calculated, Pat, in the intervening 20 years, how much money I've earned, what my total, what my net worth was, and the average I earned per year and how much I saved per year. So, I just want to kind of give an indication. So, this is two decades. We were 23, 24 I am Mm -hmm. 43 now, Uh, 43 and a half. Can I be five, nine and a half too? Uh, So (laughs) I've earned $1.557 million in that period of time. So about $1.6 million over that 20 years. Uh, I have a net worth, including my primary residence of $750,000. So I'm not even a millionaire. So take that into, take mm-hmm. that into account as you're listening. Uh, and my average earnings over that 20 years was eighty six thousand dollars, of which I saved approximately twenty thousand dollars a year. 20 years, twenty thousand dollars a year. So about four hundred thousand dollars of input, yielding three quarters of a million dollars in net worth. Okay. So I want to talk though real quickly about what that implies, and. To do that, I want to. I want you to, Pat. I want you to look at the chart I sent you of yep. my net worth over the last four years. So, if you look back to January 2019, okay, and you look at that number, it was less than two hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. in positive net worth less than four years ago. So, sixteen of those years, I spent. Sixteen of those years, I spent getting from zero to two hundred thousand dollars in the last four years. It's gone from $200,000 to three, uh, three quarters of a million dollars, right? The compounding is on the tail end, and most of it has happened in the last four years. So I think that's interesting. And we'll talk more about my net worth, but I also want to talk about what that net worth means to me. So at my current rate of spending, which is about forty dollars to $50,000 a year, three quarters of a million dollars is... 15 to 18 years of not having to work if i just went and started spending that money so i spent 20 years getting 15 to 18 years of freedom Mm. right four years ago that would have been about four years of freedom so this is why you let compounding do its work the freedom will start to compound and when it gets to the point where that freedom eclipses my natural predicted life i'm free forever I can just start spending that money down. OK, so how do you do this? How do you do what I've done? OK, and if you're not impressed by what I've done, uh, completely cool. But if you'd like to get to a place where you don't have to work for eight the next 18 years too, here's what to do. Three easy steps. One dollar cost average. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Dollar cost averaging is the act of putting the same amount of money into investments every month. And of course, what I did when I was relatively income poor was I put a little bit of money on a regular cadence into those vehicles. And then as I started to make more money, instead of inflating my lifestyle or spending my gains in salary, I invested more and more. I dollar cost averaging more. What does dollar cost averaging get you? So a month is the right time period for you to be investing on. You can do it every other paycheck if you're employed by other people. Okay, and so what you're doing is when the stock market is up, you buy fewer shares. And when the stock market is down, you buy more shares. But what happens over time is you'll have an average number of shares that you're buying, and so you'll have an average what's called cost basis, cost for those shares that you paid. So basically, what does this mean for someone in the accumulation phase of wealth? Okay. It means the exact opposite of what you think you should do is true. (laughs) You set this automatically. You set it to forget it because of the following. When the market's down, you're not going to want to invest, but that's precisely when you get more for your money. Mm -hmm. That's precisely when you get more shares for whatever set amount of money you're putting in. And when the market's up and you look at your portfolio and you see it's gone up 10% this month, go, oh shit, that sucks because my next dollar cost average in... Is going to get me fewer and fewer and fewer shares. So, how do I resolve that? I monitor very infrequently and I just automate that investing. The amount of money I invest about $5,000 a month today, it goes, it gets invested, and I don't see it. It's all automated. And so, I'm dollar cost averaging over time. Okay. The second thing, and that's what this is actually why I gave you the charts, Pat is this is probably the most important thing about letting compounding do its work. You have to be able to ignore volatility. Mm-hmm. Volatility is the propensity of stocks to go up or down based on uh, investor, some combination of macroeconomic events, microeconomic events, and investor sentiment, how people feel. Okay, Which means if you look at a 100-year chart of the S&P 500, it's up and to the right. But, around that trend line of up and to the right, you get a bunch of zigzagging up, down, up, down, up, down, and those downs can be as much as I mean it was north of eighty percent in the great depression they can be it was north of fifty percent in two thousand eight two thousand and nine right Can you imagine that if you'd had a million dollars in the bank and you woke up three months later and it was half a million bucks mm-hmm. that's volatility, and what volatility does is it disguises the trend it in the short term makes it look like compounding isn't working in fact compounding is working against you right and you better get your money out all right now because you can predict the future and it's never going to get better okay and so we have to learn as investors and as people trying to accumulate wealth how do i ignore volatility so I, I sent you two charts, Pat, and I want you to look at the one with the the green bar chart first. Yep. And I want you yep. to draw your attention to March of 2020. Now, you see that big step down in my net worth? Yep. Okay. So in uh, in February of 2020, I had $320,000 in net worth. Mm-hmm. And in March, I had two hundred That is a one-month, $50,000 uh, kick in the head hmm. OK. What could I have done? Taken all my chips off the table. Going, oh, my God, it's only going to get worse. I can predict the future. Let this stop. What did I do? Nothing. Nothing. I stopped looking at my brokerage account yep. <laughs> and I held my nose. And then six months later, I had massively eclipsed my previous net worth because the market bounced back because volatility swings in the other direction. And so I think it's really helpful to remember that volatility swings both ways, down and up, and the market finds equilibrium. moving up and to the right. Resist your urge to do anything. Mm-hmm. Resist your urge to do anything. How do you do that? Get yourself in a habit of not looking at your brokerage account, automating your, your dollar cost averaging, and letting it ride against a smart asset allocation program. I had a friend. He's still my friend. <laughs> who. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Uh, he happened to be switching jobs right when the pandemic hit. So he had right prior to the pandemic taken all of his money out of his 401k as a check distribution to be rolled into his new employer's 401k. And the market had bottomed down 30% or so. And he, he called me and he's like, when should I get back in? And the answer is always, and will always be right now. Right now you should get back in because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And somehow he avoided that drawdown at the same time that he was able to take advantage of the rebound by Mm -hmm. shit luck. Mm -hmm. But I want you to understand that if you think you can do the same, you are wrong. And here's why. When you stay the course, you make no choice. You have the choice of inaction that's the one you should take because if you sell you have to make two decisions you have to decide when to sell and then you have to decide when to buy in again so i have to be right twice in predicting the future you don't get to be you don't have to be right once you got to be right twice you're going mm-hmm. to fail at that at any cycle more than once you might get lucky once you might be my buddy who just wasn't in the market when this happened mm-hmm. but you're not going to be and if you have to make that decision, you're going to have to call me and say, when should I get back in? And the answer is always going to be the same. So don't call me right <laughs> now. Yep. Okay. So step three. So there's this, uh, there's this quote from Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, one of the others who are, you know, so Annie will come in and I'll be watching YouTube and she's like, are you watching old white men talk about money again? Uh, yeah, I am. And it's probably Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett because they're just, they're hilarious. But uh, I think it was Buffett who said that we make our investing decisions with sloth bordering on neglect. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Okay, so what does that mean? If you are saving, if you're following our rules, if you're saving, if you're investing, if you're automatically investing, you don't need to do anything else. Mm -hmm. Just go to sleep just go to sleep. And this is the advice from the the richest guy in the world or one of them. I'm sure he gets mm-hmm. eclipsed routinely by by whoever the you know our latest human trying to send people to Mars in a rocket is. But you know, I think that the up and down is leave your chips on the table. Don't take them out. Don't take them out. It's going to hurt sometimes. Volatility is going to swing against you sometime, but if you truly want to let compounding do its work, understand it's not a straight line, but it is a trend, and that attempting to predict volatility is a fool's game and you shouldn't participate. If you do all of those things and you're investing in a smart asset allocation program with diversified low-cost index funds or ETFs, you're going to win. Ten years from now, you might have four or five years of freedom. And 20 years from now, you might have 20 years of freedom. Mm-hmm. And 50 years from now, nobody's going to tell you what to do, because <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, just to reiterate the point, because folks aren't, obviously aren't looking at these charts, the top chart that, that you sent me uh, goes up and to the right and spans, I think you said, like, I don't know, let's just call it 10 years. It's not 10 years, but, but basically that. Uh, and it's sort of a steady climb upwards, and then the second chart you sent me was a year and it's a line chart. And it looks like my three-year-old is learning how to write his name right now. And so it looks (laughs) like him practicing the letter M up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. So your point is, is, uh, well-made in these visuals itself. And maybe my last question, which is just, you know, we've talked about this idea of biasing toward action. And I love that this is sort of the, the, the place where we actually want to bias toward inaction. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely
0: is. So uh, just to give you a little more context on what Pat's talking about, uh, I gave him a chart of my net worth over the last four years, marching up from $200,000 to three quarters of a million in that four-year period. I also gave him November 22 to November 23, which if you look at the subcaption, there was a net gain in my portfolio of Mm $40,000. But there were uh, three months where I lost $20,000 that month.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Brutal, bro. (laughs) Like, like that's brutal, right? You're going to work every day, you're making maybe five, maybe $10,000 this month, and you're seeing your net worth drop. Mm -hmm. But that is the price of admission. And I think the one of the phrases I've heard lately that I really like is that that is a uh, fee, not a penalty. And I think it was Housel who actually yep, brought that right. forward, right? This is a fee, not a penalty. This is a feature, not a bug. You have to withstand volatility to let compounding do its work. But you're right. I mean, agency in a lot of ways is about action. This is one place where it's about inaction. And I, But I think there's something in that that we should unpack, which is that inaction is a choice. Just like we're telling you to act to improve your life, your connection, your health, right? we're also implying that by not changing those things, by choosing inaction in those moments, you're hurting yourself. By choosing inaction in this particular moment, you're helping yourself. So
1: the wisdom of the world is knowing when to act and when not to. Love that. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, that was our final rule of wealth. As I've said, we did uh, episodes on each one of the other five rules. But one of the best places to get all of them, if you don't want to dive back into the podcast, is to download the Optimal Agency White Papers. We have put all the all the rules, all the behaviors, all the meta rules, all the actions toward improving these things into a series of free white papers. You can get them at optimalagency.co slash white papers. Put your email in there. We will send all of them to you immediately. It is the best, fastest, and simplest way to get an overall picture of this project and how you can improve your own agency, optimalagency.co slash white papers. All right, we're gonna wrap this up with an article, a hot take on an article from Mr. Adam Grant. Many folks will know who Adam Grant is. He's an author. I think he's a professor at the Wharton School of Business. I believe that's correct. This is actually an article that I'd actually saved this for a long time. It came out kind of right after right in the midst of uh, kind of coming out of COVID. Uh, and the article it's, it's in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's called the real meaning of freedom at work. A lot of it dovetails nicely with a conversation, John, that you and I had recently about burnout uh, and job crafting in particular. So head back to that if you haven't listened to that episode, because uh, we touch on a lot of these things, but there was something that stuck out in this article that I just wanted to chat with you about briefly. It's a paragraph in the article, uh, and Adam Grant writes this. In a classic 1958 lecture, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin, or Berlin, distinguished between two types of freedom. Negative liberty is freedom from obstacles and interference by others. Positive liberty is freedom to control your own destiny and shape your own life. If we want to maximize net freedom in the future of work, we need to expand both positive and negative negative liberty. And again, just as a reminder of the context, this is coming out of COVID where uh, hybrid work or remote work was like, that was all the rage. That's what everybody was doing. And so this was a conversation around how to make that the sort of future of work, work for workers. That's not a terrible sentence. I don't know what it is, but I would love your <laughs> thoughts on this, this concept of negative versus positive or negative and positive liberty. I mean, I love it. It's freedom
0: from and freedom to is really yep. the shorthand. Right? Okay. What do I need freedom from? I need freedom from bureaucracy. I need freedom from bullshit. I need freedom from other people wasting my time. And I need freedom from me wasting my time. I need freedom from me wasting my life. I need freedom from screens. I need freedom from ads. Right. I need I need freedom from half of the C-suite of one of my former employers. Like there, (laughs) there, there are a lot of things that you need to go away to exercise your agency in the world. But you can make them go away with hard choices. Right. You can make them go away. And then with positive liberties, it's okay. Well, then what do I have the freedom to do? And that's the idea. Once you've made all the negative liberties so, uh, you know, increasing negative liberties is a bit of a hard concept, but essentially mm-hmm. I've gotten rid of all the freedom. I've gotten all the freedom from now I have the freedom to, well, freedom to is actually really difficult. Here's why I think most people don't have the courage to define the end of that sentence. Freedom to blank. Hmm. Okay. If you had infinite freedom, what would you do? and we tend to fill that in with these you know utopian dreams of nonsense. I would uh spend my time on the beach, I would travel the fifty mm-hmm. countries like these kind of unobtainium kind of things that we would fill freedom to in aim lower and more concrete, and say freedom to connect with my friends and my family freedom to only do work that matters and to have the courage to define that work and the courage to think it might matter, but to be wrong. Right. And so that the freedom to is where we really want your action bias. And we want you to have the courage to say, I'm going to define what that is. What that freedom Mm -hmm. to do is. And, you know, Professor Grant gets deeper into this in the workplace context. But maybe our listeners can sit back and think, what do I need freedom from? What is the thing that's holding me back? And do not set up a straw man there. It's actually probably very little. Mm -hmm. What I want you to focus on is what do you want the freedom to do? Feel free to explore, but define the freedom to travel is not a definition. The freedom to go to this park one hour from my house once a week and hike this mountain—that is a definition. Okay, so I really love this, Pat. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I, you know, I read the I read the article and I'm like, "Damn you, Adam Grant!" Like, <laughs> like, like if he has defined in my mind what. We're aimed at with agency with an just specificity and brevity that's breathtaking. I love this letter, absolutely mm-hmm. love this letter and the concept of positive and negative liberty.
1: The, you you meant you said the the courage to define freedom. Why is it courage? Why is that the thing that's lacking? Have you okay? It's easier to be told what to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Always, it's always easier to say. If you do this, you will be rewarded. If you increase the Peterson account 15%, you will get a promotion. Cool, I guess my mission in life is to increase the Peterson account 15%. Mm -hmm. But things that matter are rarely handed down to you by other people unless those people are truly visionary. And the thing and the place where people will hand things to you tends to be work. No one will tell you how to live your life. And so you'll default to societal defaults get my own house separate myself from my family form my own family get married have two and a half kids right work a 9 to 5 buy a german sedan and mm-hmm. i realize that that is not the exercise of freedom too that is allowing someone else to tell me what to do and it's the easy path and if it wasn't the easy path it wouldn't be done to the rate it is right your dreams are somebody else's dreams odds are. And it takes true courage to define what yours are because they go in the face of that. Here are mine. I want Annie and I to grow all of our own food. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why? I don't know. Seems fun, right? And when we tell people we don't go to the grocery store, they're going to be like, why would you spend six hours a week tending vegetables when you could be doing anything else? Well, because we've defined that. Why would you choose to share your home with a roommate or a stranger as an adult, right? Well, because we made that choice and they're all countercultural or a lot of them are. And when you sit back and say, how can I enable my dreams and connection and health, that requires supreme courage because it's going to not be the default path and other
1: people aren't going to understand Mm It makes me think about something that Seth Godin says a lot, and it's often in relation to work, but I think it's broader than that, which is you've got to embrace the mentality of this might not work. And until you do that, you will always default to the safe, at least quote unquote safe, the thing that seems safe because everybody else does it the same way until you get over that, until you get over the fear of Well, maybe I'll never actually be able to accomplish growing all of my own food. You'll never get to a place where you say, this is the freedom, what I'm building here is, you know, obviously in part the freedom to grow all of my own food. Because guess what? It might, you might not make it and that's okay. But if you're fearful of that failure, if you're fearful, fearful of it not working, you will never start. Yeah. And a lot of times when we choose the quote unquote safe path,
0: we're ignoring tremendous risks in that path right? Marrying the wrong spouse, getting laid off from the job and not having any backup, right? Mm -hmm. Being reliant on a power grid that goes out in the middle of the next storm. Your risks are there and the default path does not shield you for them. It just gives you different ones. And we've Mm -hmm. used this phrase before, choose your downside. Mm -hmm. Do you, at the end of the day, want your downside to be, I took risks against my dreams that didn't work out, Or do you want your downside to be, I took the safe path and I lived a life a lot like every other life? Mm Mm-hmm. Choose your downside.
1: Take that. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, everybody, out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Thank you for the questions you send in. Best way to get there is get on the newsletter. Optimalagency.co/newsletter. Reply to any one of them; they'll get into our queue, and we'll get it into a future episode. Thank you, John. We will be back next week for another episode of the Optimal Agency Podcast.